Do we have any bulletins yet? Yes, we do. Yeah. Thanks. We're going to do a, a quick business meeting before we start service today. Oh, yeah? Uh, for the furnace. Oh. Okay. Do we have a price and all that wonderful yes, stuff? Everything's quoted sitting up there on the uh, oh, good. podium there. So What'd you come up with? Uh, about 4600 bucks all total with mm -hmm. permits. If it's no permits, then uh, it's only 4300 It's gone up $600 since we first started talking about it. Oh, my years, word. So we probably well, need to act on this right away. We're coming into the season. Yeah. So that's what we'll do is Let's do that first. Right, I'm going to have Rachel mute the, uh, the audio. Oh, yeah. For the internet. Yeah. And then I'll tell the internet that people don't. We're just going to mute. Or don't even turn it on. Just, just we'll do this first. So we don't even need the microphones on. Well, that's, I know reasonable going to just meet, I'm going to tell the internet that we're just muting the, mm -hmm. the thing so that they don't have to worry about the, oh, oh I see I see yeah just say we have an item of business in the church that we have to deal with first and then okay sounds good
sleeping. He was really awake. Yeah, yeah, he was. I just blue eyes. Smiling. Talk to Phil. I said, where can I get teeth? Is he here? He just turned on the Good morning. Before we go over our uh, announcements for today, uh, we're going to have a very brief uh, business meeting for the church. So I'm going to ask uh, my sound control to mute the uh, sound for the internet uh, so that they know that we're, we're here, but they just can't hear the minutia of the business. So.
and good morning again to our internet group included our business and we're going to go over a couple of announcements here uh, one through four is is pretty well etched in our brains forever uh, item five is uh, following morning service we will take a about a 10 minute break and then regather for our communion service there will be no evening service tonight we will resume our studies next week on Sunday, August the 14th. And we have our Sunday school now coming back in September. So please put it on your hearts for prayer uh, as to what classes you would like to be involved with. Uh, we need uh, a couple of teachers too, perhaps in addition to those that are doing the, the service. So if your heart burns for that, then uh, please sign up. Uh, we have it out on our information board in the foyer. Okay, our scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Psalms, Psalm 78, 1 through 8, and our little note says it's on page 9,147. If you can find that in the Bible, I'd be really be impressed, so... Actually, it's page Would you stand with us as we begin our service with prayer? 
Brother Ken Lewis, would you lead us this morning? take your brown uh, sorry your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 30 number 30 in the red
Scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 31 through 34, and that's page 1518 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. of the mustard seed and the yeast. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. Father in heaven, may you bless richly the words that you have given us to ponder, to dwell on, and to seek you out. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen. Amen. 
outstanding. Um, we're going to change this one to number 59 in the brown. It's the same words, just a familiar tune. So 59 in the brown. Same hymn, just the tune that we know. 5 9. <coughs> Our scripture this morning is found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and following. In our last study, we looked at the parable of the weeds and the wheat. A farmer planted his prepared field with good seed, but that night... An enemy came and oversowed the field with weed seed. The wicked deed was never discovered until the heads of grain began to develop. The weed, darnel, a kind of noxious weed which closely resembles true wheat, except that it is poisonous in nature, and its grain, the head of the grain, turns black 
upon maturity instead of golden brown. So that's when you get the giveaway of what it is, not before. So what were they going to do? Well, the servants wanted to pull the weeds up right then and there. But they would not have been able to distinguish the weeds from the wheat. And in the weeding process, undoubtedly the wheat would have been pulled up too. So the owner gave the solution, we're going to wait till harvest. The weeds will be gathered to be burned and the wheat will be put into the barns. And we ask, what was the meaning of this parable? We don't have to guess because Christ gives it. Sometimes he gives the actual definition of the parables. At other times, he leaves that to our personal study, comparing scripture with scripture. But here again, he gave us the meaning. Christ has his people planted in the world. That's the point. But the devil comes along and he plants his people right alongside of the people of God. And there's more of them than there is of us. Since the weeds are among the wheat, it's fair to say that the world has even come into the surrounds of the church, and we are not exempt from that. Weed people look like wheat people. They do the things that wheat people do. They're religious in every way. They appear to be genuine. You'd have a hard time discerning whether they're true in their faith or not. We learn that harvest day, Jesus can tell the difference. Those who have had no change of heart are gathered and cast into hell where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and the wheat will shine in the morning sun. Now today's text brings before us two short parables. Luke's gospel also contains both of these parables together. But Mark's gospel does not include the second one. What Mark does say is this. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. That's Mark chapter 4. Verse 33 and verse 34. So even Mark, I mean, he admits that in addition to the parable of the mustard seed, Jesus spoke to them with many similar parables. One of those being the parable of the East, which is included in Matthew's and Luke's Gospels. We learn, brethren, that the Bible is not con contradictory. Mark's account harmonizes beautifully with the other Gospels, but he takes a different approach to the same subject. The parable of the mustard seed, two parables as a unit, should be noted that at the offset, that both of these parables do, once again, they deal with the kingdom of heaven. Verse 31, verse 33, they both contain the characteristic expression, the kingdom of heaven is like. 
But there's something new and exciting about these two parables that we've not seen in the others which we have considered. For example, in the parable of the wedding banquet, we saw a mixture of good and bad people present at the banquet. One inappropriately dressed, you remember, in his own self-righteousness, he was cast out. Indicating the truth, Matthew twenty-two fourteen, many are called, but few are chosen. In the parable of the sower, we saw again this admixture in the various kinds of responses people have to the preaching of the gospel. There was Mr. Hard Heart, wouldn't even receive the gospel. Mr. Shallow Heart, well, he was there for a little while. Mr. Distracted Heart, now he couldn't be bothered with the gospel. He had better and other things to do. And finally, Mr. Good Heart, who received the word of God gladly and profited from it. In the parable of the weeds and the wheat, once again, the emphasis was on how God's kingdom is populated with sons of the evil one, verse 38, a phenomena which will remain until the end of the age, when only in the judgment will the fake wheat be separated from the true. Having said all that, this is not the scenario before us in the parables of today's study. In the parable of the mustard seed and likewise the parable of the yeast, Jesus, as it were, turns his attention of his hearers away from the emphasis on the admixture of false and true people in his kingdom to a consideration of those only who are his true disciples. Yes, kingdom of heaven on earth contains both the wicked and the righteous. Yes, there is this tension which exists between the farmer's intent to produce a good harvest and the devil's intent to see that crop destroyed. And yes, the competition of the people of God to survive in a hostile world will continue till the end of the age. But let us not forget whose side of the kingdom is going to prevail. Let's not be so engrossed with a disproportionate admixture of wicked in contrast to the number of the righteous that we begin to despair and lose our perspective. To help us not lose heart, Jesus shifts his emphasis to the people of God alone and deliberately excludes any discussion of the wicked and their influence on the kingdom of God. Parable of the mustard seed deals with the expansion of Christ's designs in the external world in which we live, the progress of the gospel. The parable of the yeast deals with the expansion of Christ's designs within the hearts of God's true people. And so we have here two oases in the midst of the desert of stark, barren reality of the progress of evil in God's kingdom. Yes, evil progresses, but so does the righteous cause of God. And it's the outcome which is to be 
the focus of our help. Don't get bogged down in, oh, the wicked are just tearing our country apart and what's going to happen next and we start doing this, we start wringing our hands and start worrying about our children and our grandchildren and what kind of world are they going to inherit and on and on we go in terms of those kind of thoughts. So consider firstly then the parable of the mustard seed. Look at verse 31 and 32. He told them another parable saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants. It actually becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in the branches. Now, immediately we understand that this mustard seed is not, it is not the variety which our country, in our country, is very popular. I remember in the 60s, the manufacturers of jewelry would take a mustard seed, just one seed, and they would put it in a teardrop ornament encased in glass, and women would use that and wear it on a, on a chain around their necks. That's a small seed. But also the plant it produced, the mustard plant of our country, very small. The mustard seed of this parable, however, is descriptive of a plant which is indigenous to Palestine alone. It is not the smallest of seeds compared to all the kinds of seeds in the world. But as Jesus explained, it's the smallest of all your seeds. So that is the way they were to think of it. The rabbinical writings are replete references to the smallness of the mustard seed. The Greek word, it's um, sinope, it's actually of Egyptian origin. And it indicates that such a plant was able to survive the most arid conditions. Think of that. From this little seed, large plants grew to the height of 10 to 15 feet. The size of a standard apple tree. Fully adequate to house the birds of the air as they roosted among the limbs. The rabbinical writings describe one such mustard tree as being as tall as a man mounted upon his horse. And another tells of a rabbi who had a mustard plant in his backyard sufficiently large enough and strong enough for him to climb in it. So we're not talking a little bush here. Now, this is not to say that we are talking here of a tall oak tree or even of the cedars of Lebanon spoken of in the Bible. Being large is not 
the point of this illustration. The point has to do with something large resulting from something very small. So it's the process that Jesus is emphasizing. And that brings us to the meaning of the parable. What is it that is small in its beginning and becomes large in the end? What is it that starts out in a rather obscure, insignificant seed and ends up a tree of sufficient proportions that it becomes shelter for the birds of the air? Well, we don't have to speculate. We read, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted. When it grows, it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. So Jesus is prophesying the expansion of his kingdom in the world despite opposition by the worldly elements in his kingdom which we have seen in other parables, to do their worst to snuff out the life of the righteous. Consider for a moment the tempestuous beginning of the Christian faith. When Mary was with child, the world found no room in its ends for her comfort and for the safe and sterile delivery of her baby though her child was the son of God. She, along with her husband and baby, were relegated to a stable barn where farm animals were sheltered, where the unsanitary environment associated with animal defecation existed, and where the baby's crib was nothing more than a feeding trough where cows and donkeys and camels salivated as they gobbled up the feed grain. Anyone who has ever raised livestock knows that a barn, a feeding trough, are no environment to place a newborn babe. The potential for disease and death was great. But the Christ child prevailed. When at last, Mary and Joseph and their baby relocated into a house and the Christ child was about two years old, King Herod sent his soldiers into Bethlehem and slaughtered every male child two years old and younger in the hope of eliminating Christ as a rival king. But Jesus had escaped to Egypt with his parents and only returned after the death of Herod when God judged him with a vile disease. It's a terrible way that he died. The Christian church began with but a small band of men who once were the disciples of the baptizer, but they became the followers of Christ. These were not learned men from the University of Jerusalem, but they were fishermen, tradesmen, even hated tax collectors for Rome. These men followed Christ 
and learned of him right up until the night of his arrest and trial. At his crucifixion, they deserted him, yes. He looked like Satan in one fell swoop had killed the Messiah and destroyed the faith of his followers. Ah, the end of Christianity. How clever. But the resurrection on the third day and the regrouping of the disciples and the reaffirmation of their fidelity to Jesus demonstrated that the mustard seed was still alive and it was still growing. The one who had begun a good work in them was carrying it on to completion. After the ascension of the Lord, the disciples awaited the opportunity for the outpouring of the Spirit of Christ that came upon the day at Pentecost. And the persecution continued. Peter and John were imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Then they were beaten and released. The apostle James was arrested and put to the the sword by Herod. Different Herod, but the, the same lineage. They arrested Peter, and he intended to do the same to Peter that he had done to James because he saw it pleased the Jews. Had he had his way, Herod might have determined to work his way through the entire remaining disciples, executing each in turn for preaching the gospel. There's a reason to kill somebody, because you don't like the message they're they're saying. But God delivered Peter, as you know, and that mustard plant continued to grow. Saul of Tarsus implemented a purge on the Christian faith. Stephen was his first victim, and many more followed. He sought out the Christians, even pursuing them with arrest warrants to foreign cities. And when they were hauled in chains to Jerusalem, many of those saints joined the ranks of the martyrs. And it looked like Satan had raised up a champion for his cause who would almost single-handedly stamp out the kingdom of heaven before it had a chance to gain a foothold. Ah, but the Christ, whose kingdom Jesus is describing in this parable, arrested Saul in his tracks, opened his eyes to the truth of the gospel, And Saul was gloriously converted to the truth of Jesus Christ. The chief agent in Satan's arsenal was made the chief agent in the mission advancement of the gospel of Christ's kingdom. Only God can do things like that. The churches of Christ were planted by Paul and his co-workers in Asia Minor, Cyprus, Greece, finally Rome itself. They were men who turned the world upside down with the truth they taught. And through the gospel, that mustard seed continued to grow until under Constantine, the emperor, the hated Christian faith 
became the nationally accepted religion of Rome by fiat, by order of the emperor. Who would have thought? Oh, but the devil, never lazy, ever alert, continued his attempts to destroy the kingdom of God. This time, not through sword, not through persecution, but through subterfuge and the pollution of the gospel itself. The Church of Constantine became the Roman Catholic Church. That's where it came from. And soon within its walls and from its pulpits, all kinds of erroneous teachings became the main diet for the people of God. The doctrines of purgatory, Mariology, the selling of salvation through indulgences, the inerrancy of the chief bishop, the pope, the practice of penance to make restitution for sin. You can buy your way to heaven. It all began to cloud and obscure the sufficiency of Christ himself, Christ alone as the only redeemer of sinners. So what Satan had not won through persecution, he won through the power of false teaching, and it appeared that the mustard tree was about to be cut off at its roots and to die. But God raised up men like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Melanchthon, men themselves who followed the footsteps of John Huss, who was martyred for his faith, and men like the Baptist brethren who never ever did acquiesce to the teachings of Rome. And just when all was black with no light at the end of the tunnel, a revival broke out. God sent his spirit to rescue his people from the enemy's snare, and the mustard tree once again sent its branches skyward for a safe heaven for the sons of the kingdom. The Reformation spread like fire over the continent and into England and eventually into the Americas carried in the hearts of the Puritans, the Baptists, and the Wesleyans who migrated to the New World. Today Christianity can be found throughout the globe not just churches with a Christian label, but true Christians. Genuine, born of the Spirit believers who are committed to Jesus as Lord and Savior and who continue to hasten the gospel of the kingdom to its conclusion. The first hospitals, the first homes for the aged, the first orphanages, the first elementary and secondary institutions, the first universities, the first trade unions were all established by Christian men and women. The prohibition against slavery, the fight for women's rights, the alleviation of poverty, the advancement of the arts and the sciences have all been spearheaded by the Christian community. Compare this to the countries and cultures 
today, which are still steeped in paganism. What about them? Well, in those countries, women are oppressed. The orphan is abandoned. There's little or no medical help. There's no agencies of mercy. They don't even know anything about mercy. Satan is a murderer from the beginning, Jesus said. And the religions he fosters are evil, they're wicked, they're hurtful, they're murderous in intent and practice. I just read in the news this week of a Muslim father who killed his two daughters. He shot them dead. Why? Because they were dating two American teenage boys. That's why. Jesus was right. Devil was a murderer from the beginning. But while the devil's kingdom is numerous and powerful, it is still Christ's kingdom that grows and enlarges beyond its small beginnings. God's purposes prevail. Satan's designs are frustrated. It's the story of Job and Satan all over again. If you haven't read the book of Job, shame on you. You need to read it. It's the account of how God protected his servant over Satan's onslaught time after time after time. And in the end, Job prevailed. Now where do you take hope in things like this? We are living in the day of fulfilled prophecy. Christ's prophetic word in this parable, the promise that his kingdom of small beginnings will reach astronomical proportions for his glory and as a safe haven for his people's good. Daniel predicted the same as he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the mighty statue. Daniel prophesied the workings of God for our day. Here's the way he said it. A rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, which all stands for kings and kingdoms, were broken to pieces at the same time and became shaft on the threshing floor. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue, statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel 2, verse 32 and following. Interpretation, verse 44. In the times of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands, a rock 
that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. God's sovereignty. Isaiah describes the Messiah and his kingdom in these words. A shoot. Here we're back to farming again. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. With righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor and the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. It's a word of truth here. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. The wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. And in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Isaiah 11, verse 1 and following. Now, brethren, all of this and more is what Jesus is referring to when he says that the kingdom of heaven is like a little mustard seed in its beginnings, which grows to a sizable tree, which becomes the refuge for the birds of the air. Christ's kingdom will prevail, is what he's teaching. It has grown and it continues to grow to this very day, ever expanding, ever conquering the world of ignorance, superstition, lies, and deceit. Christ is the branch that draws all nations to himself. Now, not only does this occur externally, but there's growth internally as the parable of the yeast bears out. Okay, let's look at verse 33. He told them still another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So it was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. In scripture, um, yeast is often referred to as evil, something evil. The fact that evil is pernicious, a malady which infects every element of a man's being, that idea that it, it just, it's in there and it's growing and it's 
getting bigger, and it's, it's like a cancer. But that's not the meaning here. Here it is, it isn't the yeast itself, which is uppermost importance, but what it does in a batch of dough. What does it do? Well, Jesus says it works all through the dough. So not only is God's kingdom advancing externally throughout the kingdoms of the world, but it grows within the heart of the spirit-filled believer. Like yeast in bread dough, it touches every aspect of the bread-making process and it gives life and vitality to otherwise lifeless flour. This too was prophesied by the prophets of the Old Testament. God speaking through Jeremiah made this prediction. The time is to coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. This is the covenant that I will make. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor saying, Know the Lord. <coughs> because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and following. Isaiah writes in chapter 54, in verse 1 and following, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who had a husband, says the Lord. Do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. For your maker is your husband. Isn't that an interesting statement? Your maker is your husband. Wow. He goes on. The Lord Almighty is his name. Just in case you didn't figure out who the maker was. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He's called the God of all the earth. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord. O afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you with stones of turquoise. All your sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. In righteousness you will be established. You will refute every tongue who accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Isaiah 54, verse 1 and following. Now, in these Old Testament passages, the symbolism is, is different, but the message is the same. God is at work, not only extending his kingdom 
externally throughout the world so that in the end the nations of the earth will come and pay homage to him. But he works in his people's hearts like, like yeast within a batch of dough. God is working his will to conform us to the righteous image of his beloved son. And our barrenness becomes productive. Our sins are forgiven. And with them, the fear and the disgrace begins to dissipate. Our maker becomes our husband. Think of that. He showers us with his compassion. His love is unfailing. His peace is a covenant forever. Our broken person, like a plundered city, is rebuilt with costly stones. We are established in righteousness. And as such, those who accuse us will be refuted. Now, how are we to live in light of the promise of Christ that his kingdom, like a mustard seed, is growing externally into a sizable tree, and like yeast in bread dough, his kingdom is remaining and reshaping us, who are sons of the kingdom. He's making us into people of righteousness. Well, one thing we're to do is we are to live patiently with the realization that Christ's kingdom is not failing. We're not to hit the panic button because we see the increase of evil in our land. And boy, we see the increase of evil in our land, don't we? The nations of the earth, the human governments, plot and scheme against the Lord and his anointed, Psalm 2, but God is at peace in the heavens because he has cast their doom into the unbreakable prophecies of Scripture which predict their demise and the triumph of God's kingdom. Our faith is not to be simply of the saving variety, by which I mean a trust in Christ to save us from our sins. And then, from that point, we live in fear and suspicion, waiting for the world to come in and swallow us up as the people of God. No. The weeds didn't do that in the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Though the enemy of our souls did his worst to choke the life out. God may indeed allow us to go through some deep waters, but in the end, the barren woman will have more children than the wife who had a fertile womb. Why? Because God our maker is our husband, and his brand of fathering is filled with everlasting kindness, I'm reading scripture, compassion, and unfailing love. So what are we supposed to do? We're to wait patiently for the consummation of the age. That's the first thing. But secondly, beyond waiting patiently, we are to work diligently. 
like yeast works its way through a large amount of flour until it has worked its way all through the dough. Verse 33. This work which we do is not only in our service for God, but in the mortification process in which we work on our own known sin, ridding it from our lives through confession and repentance and seeking by the power of the Holy Spirit of God to replace the evil habits within with the godly fruit of the Spirit himself. And we have God's promise that he will establish us in righteousness. Isaiah 54, verse 14. That he will so eradicate sin from our lives that our accusers will be refuted in their accusation. Verse 17 of our text. So I ask, are you struggling with some known sin in your life? Self-pity? Anger? Hypocrisy? Sexual lust? Greed? Indifference? These works of the flesh will damn lesser men and women and would surely damn you if you were not kept by the power of God. As a believer, you are part of Christ's church against which the gates of hell will not prevail. Do not therefore give up on your struggle against sin. Do not roll over and play dead. Do not quit the race. How we need steadfastness in our fickle age. If you fall, when you fall, God will be there to restore you as he has promised. And then finally, in light of these two parables, which promise the victory of Christ's kingdom over the world, try to see beyond the smallness to the big picture. As the saying goes, don't despise the day of small things. Do not lament the fact that our church is dwarfed in size, its outreach, its growth, by some of the larger churches in the area. Do not make comparisons between us and the super churches that you see on television and read about in the newspapers. For all of the children's clubs, that other churches have, do we not have young people here who know and love the Lord? Well, we do. Did they not find the Savior in our services? If the saving grace of God is among us, then God is among us. And it matters not that we do not have a hundred teens in our church. We don't even have 100 people in our church. What matters, brethren, is that we are faithful with our resources and with our spiritual gifts, utilizing them to the fullest for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Has not the sickness, the sorrow, the pain which our little church has suffered caused us to become a tender-hearted community of saints? I think so. Do we not have a way with hurting people that is often missing 
in larger, more complex organizations. Some people go to big churches because they want to get lost. They don't want people being compassionate towards them or asking them how they're feeling or praying for them and this or that or whatever. They want to just be left alone and come and go as they please. The Spirit is at work conforming us to the Savior who was known in his day for his compassion. It is not, or is not, is it not, the gospel of the kingdom preached here faithfully week after week when many churches now deny the faith or some element of the faith. It's the truth about Jesus which sets us free and liberates sinners from their sin. It's the truth which brings hope to helpless sinners. And without this truth, men will perish. If the truth is denied or the gospel is altered, people will be led into the delusion of a false peace. And that's where our society is. So whatever souls God gives us, if they come through the door of truth, they will be members indeed of God's growing, expanding, conquering kingdom, and nothing will be able to shake them loose from God's victorious reign. Nothing. And brethren, this is the gospel Jesus preached. The one that we're part of. And endeavoring to advocate week in and week out as we witness the truth of the gospel. Our Lord, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your love for us. Yeah, we're little, but you're in the little. You're in the still, small voice, the scripture says. We need to understand that. Help us not to be jealous of what other churches can can do and what they do do. It may not be that all that busyness is for you and your glory. But we wish it so. We have no malignancy or jealousy or hatred for people who are large in what they're doing. But we're also thankful for who we are, small in number, but staying true to the gospel as you gave it. We're looking at the gospel, Jesus, that you preached. And we want to be in that same vein. We praise and thank you for it. Bless us in the hour to come when we remember how it is that you made us part of your kingdom through the shed blood of Jesus. We give you thanks in Christ's name.
Amen. We're going to sing a hymn and then take a 10-minute break. Regather for the Lord's table. The hymn number is in the hymnal, and it's 356. 356 in the hymnal. Stand with me when you find number 356 in the hymnal. Okay, we'll take a 10-minute break. Regather when you hear the music. 